This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Well, a very good afternoon to everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, we're joined by Mike Berners-Lee, uh, and I'm Tanya Steele from WWF here in the UK. And over the next hour, this is an opportunity for us to hear from Mike as one of the world's leading thinkers on sustainability. And there is no doubt that right now, our planet is in crisis. We are faced literally on a daily basis by a cascade of statistics and world events that give any one of us cause for concern in terms of our carbon use, usage, the nature of the food we eat, the way we live our lives. And I think this isn't just about some of the immediate issues that we see day to day close to us. We know that this is issues that are affecting our entire planet. If we consider what has dominated the news just in recent days, in terms of the devastating fires taking place across the Amazon, the very lungs of our planet. This is a setting where we rely on the Amazon rainforests, not just for 17% of our water, 10% of our global biodiversity, and effectively some 20% of our oxygen in terms of both the CO2 it draws in and the air it expels. A lesser-known story is it is home to 34 million people. And our actions in those settings, I think we'll hear from Mike, really do count. And we know that we're facing a very big question as we move forward into the future. We have growing population. We have greater needs of food, of energy. But we also have wild spaces and nature under greater threat than ever before. I speak regularly to politicians and businesses about a triple challenge we face. How will we feed 10 billion people while stabilizing our climate and while maintaining what little we have left of our natural world? These are very, very big questions indeed. And turning to Mike as our very special guest today, Mike's been grappling with these issues for a number of years now. He's a professor at the Institute of Social Futures at Lancaster University. He researches the global food system, carbon metrics, and perhaps most importantly of all, develops really practical tools and metrics to ensure that we can think about and indeed act in the future. Unlike books on so many environmental issues, I promise you, you do not need a PhD to understand some of not just the ideas and the issues being put forward by Mike, but actually some of the solutions. And indeed, I think there's an opportunity and there will be an opportunity for all of you to ask some questions on that later as well. I took Mike's book away on a camping holiday in France just a few weeks ago, and I was amazed to see it seized upon by a group of 13-year-olds camping with us who ravenously read it remarkably, not least on the food question. There was a big debate about hamburgers for the future. 
So, Mike, turning to your book and turning to this 300 pages of work, you really do pack quite a punch within it. And I know one of your premises is how can it act as a guide to help us thrive on our planet, as opposed to, and I quote, simply smashing the place to pieces. So, Mike, what inspired you? Well, uh, okay, so I've been working mainly on climate change stuff for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, and um, I've written a couple of books about it and done all, all sorts of research and so on. And, but it's clear if you really want to deal with climate change, the more you think about it, the deeper you think about it, the more you have to see it as actually just one symptom of something bigger that's going on. Um, and so what's that bigger thing that's going on? Some people use, have a big word for it, they call it the Anthropocene, uh, and I'll use that just to describe it. Um, a totally different context that humanity is suddenly operating in now. We've been getting to be a more and more powerful species for, you know, um, all the time, for millennia. But suddenly, really, really recently, we've reached a point at which suddenly we're more powerful than the resilience of the planet to put up with all the things we do to it. And so we've been able to get away with treating the world as a big, robust playground. And very recently that changed, and suddenly it's not. It's more like a china shop, and we have to be uh, much more careful, raise the game of our stewardship dramatically, and we need to do it right now. So 100 years ago, we couldn't smash the whole place up, even if we tried. 50 years ago, we could if we did something really, really stupid. Now we're so powerful that we will unless we suddenly uh, um, operate in a totally different way. And here in this Anthropocene, it's not just climate change. So if we just found a climate change-shaped sticky plaster to stick on the climate change problem, as, you know, as you've said, Tanya, you know, for a start, we're, we're up against biodiversity crisis, which is just as serious as climate change, and we've got to feed a world population, and we've got other environmental challenges. So suddenly, it's all big and systemic. And if you're going to be sensible about any one part of it, actually, you need to think in a big, systemic way and not just about the maths and the science and the technology. We have to join up all the other di dimensions as well about how we think and how we do our politics and our economics. It's just all inescapably joined up. So this book is my attempt to try and do that thinking, to try and put into one book you know, absolutely everything that we need to be thinking about at once, all in one joined-up way. So, you know, uh, how do we feed everyone? How do we do biodiversity? How do we deal with climate change? What kind of economics would we need to do that? What kind of politics? What kind of values? How do humans need to think? How do we need to deal with truth? All, everything that matters um, in one short, accessible, uh, fun to read, but also deadly serious and robust book with advice for what needs to happen at the global scale as well as the individual scale. So that's it, unashamedly, my best attempt at doing everything in one book. <laughs> it was quite hard to write. <laughs> so, Mike, when I'm conscious, one of the things you've worked on for a very, very long time, and obviously it's a huge element of this book, it also was in some of, some of your earlier books in terms of um, how bad are bananas. Uh, and again, I hope someone's going to ask that question later on as a great banana <laughs> fan myself. But one of the things that you have highlighted is that we've spent decades trying to deal with climate. And there was finally the very iconic... Uh, Paris Agreement, the Climate Accord in 2015. But the sense, I think, from you is that we're still not making progress, that this now is the make or break years. What do you mean by that, both on a big systemic level, but actually in terms of any one of the audience sat here in sweltering heat, 
worried about climate change. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, the science has been clear-cut on, on climate change for decades now, in, you know, in the broad sense that, you know, it's clear that man-made climate change is a really big deal and we, it's very important that we, we do something about it. And, um, you know, for ages, it's just been very frustrating. We've just been, so I, I, my last book, The Burning Question, I wrote with Duncan Clark, and we, at the end of it, we were just looking at each other going, come on, the stuff we've written here, you know, it's actually not rocket science. It's totally clear-cut. And the world is just totally carrying on regardless. And now we're in a situation where you know, we've had the Paris Agreement and we've had subsequent um, reports and it's, it's, you know, even the BBC gets it properly now that it's uncontentious, that climate change is a real emergency. Um, but yet, if you look at the carbon emissions curve, it is rising exponentially, and I'm choosing my words here carefully, exactly as we might have predicted it would have done if humans had never noticed that climate change was an issue at all. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we need to, it tells us that, uh, we need to completely raise our game and that piecemeal actions aren't enough. They are important, but they're not enough. So I can, you know, I can take my personal actions, and I'm sure there are plenty of people in this room who take personal actions, but actually, if you add them all up across the world, you don't see them adding up to a little dent in that carbon curve at all. And that's because of things called rebound effects, which I talk through in detail in the book. But it basically means at the global system level, all those piecemeal actions get counterbalanced by other areas where the carbon goes up. So that sounds like a depressing message, but it's not, because if we can, can recognise that and say, well, what does that tell us about what will and won't solve the problem? What we need is global systemic change not just about climate change, but just sticking with climate change for a second. You know, so we need to leave all the world's fossil fuel in the ground. So if as an individual you're asking, well, what can I do that's going to help bring that about? The question to ask is, how can I help to create the conditions under which that global systemic change becomes possible? And that's a different question to how can I cut my carbon footprint. It does include all that, but it actually opens up a whole wider lot of stuff about how can I exert influence to make possible that global systemic change. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as we go. So, Mike, if I may, let me probe one of those points, and you say it many times in the book, and particularly on the very substantive se section on energy, the concept of leaving all fossil fuel in the ground. And I think that will give any range uh -huh. of people palpitations in this room, because actually, how do we live? What is that vision of the future, and actually how quick does that transition have to be? Okay, so it needs to be, it needs to be pretty quick. I will, I will just say that, that the headline on all the, on all the um, technical and scientific challenges and environmental challenges that we face, the headline is, the brilliant news is, that they are all basically solvable, right? The only thing that's stopping us is ourselves. We just need to, you know, we know how to solve these problems. So. Um, so the world needs to leave the fossil fuel in the ground because you know, the biggest contributor to climate change is, is, is fossil fuel emissions. And so just to be clear about a few things about that, it's no good just growing our, our renewable energy supply because humankind is growing its total energy supply at the moment at 2.4% per year. That's a factor of 10 every century. And if we do that by 2050, if we carry on doing that till 2050, by 2050 we'll need twice as much energy as, we, as we're using now. Which means we could grow a renewable energy supply to replace all of today's fossil fuel 
supply. And you know what? It wouldn't do us any good at all because the additional energy that we'd be using would all end up being fossil fuel. So we have to reduce the amount of energy that we're using at the global level, but particularly at the, at the UK level in, developing, in developed countries. Um, and we need to grow the renewables, and we need to uh, make sure that as we grow the renewables, they replace the fossil fuel instead of having it as well. So that's why you know, there's, no, there's no getting around. It doesn't matter how difficult you think this is to achieve. We need a global arrangement to make sure the fossil fuel doesn't come out of the ground. So when you hear the fossil fuel companies talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, 1.5 degrees, that's very, very important. Um, and uh, we need to achieve that in a way that also meets our need for growing energy supply. That's nonsense. And when you hear all the kind of stuff that you sometimes hear them talking about, if it's not coherent with, and we're going to stop taking the fuel out of the ground, then everything you're hearing is a load of, a load of greenwash. Just had to get that in. <laughs> We definitely don't want any greenwashing at all. We'll probably return to the fossil fuel debate as it's such a, a massive one. But you talked earlier in your introduction around the concept of the Anthropocene. And many people in this room will know what that is. But I guess to a non-scientific audience, I know many um, yeah. scientific leaders have literally said, welcome to the Anthropocene. And this is the first time that man has effectively had an impact on the planet in terms of not just our presence, but our activity in terms of creating a new geological age. How would you describe it to this audience? Okay, so uh, I mean, I just, um, what I mean by it, very simply, it's the era in which the biggest thing that's, uh, that affects the environment is us. And we can argue about when that started. You know, you can have, you can have a, you know, we, we wiped out the very big mammals, you know, thousands of years ago, actually. Um, but in terms of when have we reached the point at which not only are we the biggest thing affecting the planet, but we've suddenly reached a point where if we don't wake up to that and respond uh, accordingly, it's going to come back and bite us really, really hard. And that moment is now. So you could argue we were in the Anthropocene 50 years ago, 30 years ago, in terms of we were causing all kinds of environmental decline and you know, starting to put all those plastics out and starting to rip apart our biodiversity and starting to really appreciably change the climate. But the point at which, if we don't wake up to it, we are really, really going to experience the fallout from it in a very painful way, is now. And people talk about, you know, is it 12 years or David Attenborough rounded it to 10 years or so on. I just want to kind of put straight where we really are with that because the truth of it is we don't know. We do know that we're exposed to a lot of risk. We do know that if we don't come off that rising carbon curve, at some point we're going to trigger things that are catastrophic for humanity and lots of other species as well. Uh, but exactly when, actually, we don't know. I get scared by people saying, oh, well, we must turn things around in a decade, because, A, that makes me think, and that suggests, I think, to some people, well, that's all right, I'll just stay in bed for another nine, and then we'll take action. <laughs> what that really means is we need, to, we need to be working on it really hard right from now in order to have turned things around in 10 years. But actually, we don't know. It's, it's all about, you know, we haven't got a clue what we're... We're this massively powerful species, and we actually don't know very much about what causes what. We don't know about tipping points. We don't know about when we reach a point at which the methane, which is starting to explode out of the Antarctic, 
causing 50-meter craters that can be, and explosions that can be heard 300 kilometers away. Right? We don't know whether we've reached a point at which that's going to continue happening in a snowballing effect because the more methane, the harder the climate gets, so the more me the tundra melts, so the more the, the more um, the more explodes again. You know, if if we've reached a, um, a positive feedback system on that that we can't contain, then that's it. We've got several more degrees happening to us right now, and it's bound to be catastrophic for billions of us and lots of other species. But on the other hand, maybe it'll all settle down, and we've got another 20 years. I mean, we just don't know, but we do know that. We're really throwing the dice. We're exposed to very high risks. And the harder we push now, the better our chances of containing the environmental crisis to something that's only catastrophic for millions of people and not catastrophic for billions. And Mike, I guess thinking about the question and the concept of science, the, the scale of scientific content, evidence, data is dizzying. But equally, I think people are searching for exact solutions, exact answers, exact days on the week by which <laughs> X, Y, Z needs to happen. But in fairness, what, what would you say to the general public, to politicians that want that precision and expect that from scientists? Do we have enough? Well, we can sort of, I mean, there have always been assessments of, you know, what sort of temperature can we live with? And so um, 1.5 degrees is the kind of, you know, accepted Thing. But I, you know, I was in a room with uh, David King, the uh, former chief scientist, uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about, well, actually, you know, 1.1, there's good evidence that 1.1 is pretty risky, actually. That's about where we're at now. So, um, but, you know, let's say we stick with 1.5, and maybe that's an acceptable um, level of risk. Well, then it looks like if you go with that, then uh, the whole world needs to be about carbon neutral by 2050, which means that the developed world, countries like ours that are more strongly placed to go and make that change, need to be ahead of that. So the government has adopted targets for, one, for 2050 now. That's a very, very good step in the right direction. It's actually not enough, but we should still be encouraging because it's a good step in the right direction. And we should, be, you know, we should be thinking about that as an absolute minimum. But you know what? We can do better than that. It's, it's clear-cut, because if you look at the Climate Change Committee's report on that, um, they were very conservative about the extent to which it's possible to make change just because we all, as citizens, all the people in this room and beyond, actually want to live differently because we want to live in a nice... We want to keep our beautiful planet A um, functioning properly. You know? And I think the scope for that when we all wake up is enormous. And you know, I will just say that the last few months, I think, have been really, really interesting. I said, I said how depressing it was a few years back that it looked like the world was just totally carrying on. Well, the carbon curve is still carrying on, but what's changing is that humankind is really showing signs of waking up, and people are taking to the streets, Extinction Rebellion, and the kids taking to the streets, and they are having impact. And you know, even big corporations are starting to feel more fragile if they've got their heads stuck in the ground. And you know, we've got a long, long way to go. But I do feel certainly hopeful that if we all push hard, we could see that change now. We could see it. Actually, want to live differently because we want to live in a nice. We want to keep our beautiful planet A um, functioning properly. You know, and I think the scope for that when we all wake up is enormous. And you know, I will just say that the last few months, I think, have been really, really interesting. I said, I said how depressing it was a few years back that it looked like the world was just totally carrying on. Well, the carbon curve is still carrying on, but what's changing is that humankind is really showing signs 
of waking up and people are taking to the streets, Extinction Rebellion and the kids taking to the streets and they are having impact and you know, even big corporations are starting to feel more fragile if they've got their heads stuck in the ground. And you know, we've got a long, long way to go, but I do feel certainly hopeful that if we all push hard, we could see that change now. We could see it very, very easily. 12 billion really careful people could snuggle up nicely and live well together and live on a beautiful, environmentally diverse, rich planet. You know, that would be possible. Although if we were really careful people, we'd probably make sure there weren't 12 billion of us. So, you know, the fewer of us there are, the easier this challenge is. There's no, no doubt about that. And particularly, you know, people in rich developed countries like ours have a bigger impact. So, you know, it is helpful. I'm not, you know, I've got two wonderful kids. They're actually here today. I wouldn't be without them. And, you know, not, you know, we do still need to, if we want to not go extinct, we still need to have some kids. Um, but, you know, I think now we are at a point where it's time to say, you know, think very carefully before having a larger family. And certainly, you know, enable people not to have larger families if they don't want to. Make it very easy for people not to have kids at all if they don't want to have kids. And especially in the developing world, you know, and there's good evidence that says if we source out inequality and education, especially for, uh, for women and so on, we can, we can get to a point where actually uh, populations will naturally decline. And as they do that, and as we source out inequality in the poorer parts of the world, become, you know, become richer as they, you know, we, as, you know it's, it's actually really important that that happens. Um, we need to make sure that as that happens, their carbon footprint doesn't go up. So I wonder if we connect that to food, because we've talked a lot about um, carbon through the lens of energy. Um, what about in terms of food production? We not only have a growing population globally, um, but inevitably a economically richer broadly um, population globally who too would love access to protein on a more regular basis and all those good things. It'd be great to get a sense and an insight um, for the room in terms of what your book says on food yeah. and how we need to think about this here in the UK as well as around the world. Yeah, okay, sure. So about the first 50 pages of this book are all about the, the global food system. And the, the reason for that is because you know, quite often we, we, look at fo we look at climate change on its own uh, or it gets looked at on its own and actually you, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to do that. And when, the minute you start looking at food, you start seeing that multiple agenda that you just talked about. So we need to feed everybody and we need to manage our biodiversity properly and we need to deal with climate change sort of all, and some other things as well all at the same time. And if you, so we did some research at Lancaster just tracking all the world's nutrients on the journey from field to fork and other endpoints. And what we found is, I mean, it's fantastically encouraging. At the global level, we are growing 6,000 calories per person per day. That's about two and a half times what we need to eat. And we, I'll just talk through the calories, but I'll just say we did this, for all, this analysis for all the essential nutrients, protein, vitamin A, iron, zinc, and you get a very similar story. So we're growing two or three times what we need. And some gets lost in things like harvest losses and storage losses and processing losses, and we waste some in households and so on. And we should cut that down, and that's important, and we can. We can probably at least halve all those losses. But the, the two really big sources of, of leakage in the system, the biggest one by far is that we feed about three-quarters of the, the, the calorific energy requirement for humanity um, into farm animals. That's human edible feed going into farm animals. They also eat all the grass and pasture on top of that. And they give us back 
about, about less than 600 calories per person per day in, um, in meat and dairy. So there's a colossal uh, inefficiency in this. And if we could just take that out of the food system, stop feeding inherently human edible food to farm animals, then we would liberate so much spare capacity to feed a rising population, manage our biodiversity a lot better, um, and, uh, and just by the way, we would hugely cut the uh, greenhouse gases while we're at it. So the, the, you know, we don't have to go vegetarian or vegan if we don't want to. It's all about proportions. But uh, we do. There's, you know, there's just no getting around this. And it's, re and it's really encouraging to see all the major TV channels uh, really getting hold of this now and you know, the BBC being unequivocal about it. The sustainable world has a lot less meat and dairy consumption, which doesn't have to be zero, but it has to be less. Yeah. And I guess this also moves us into a wider question on economics in terms of what can I do as an individual? Um, why would I worry about my keep cup or a shift to a meat-free Friday or even a vegan diet um, whilst we're seeing exponential growth of consumption in some of the world's largest economies in terms of the US and China. And if you were to think about those sort of slices of economics across individuals, businesses, and entire nations, again, what would your analysis be? Okay, so I think we, it's a really good question because we need to stand back from this because I've said it's all a big global systemic thing, right? And it is, it's a global systemic problem. And it needs it needs solutions on the one hand at the global level. So really, I think the question of, you know, is there anything any of us could do as individuals is a really important one to ask head on. Because, you know, some people have, have you know, lots of people have said to me, have tried out the idea, you know, well, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's pointless, um, any of us as individuals doing something. It all has to be that down to the, the politicians and so on. I don't think that's the case at all. I think system change comes from actually everywhere at once. And all of us need to be thinking, how can we create, help create the conditions for change? Because politicians say, oh, well, we, we can only follow our electorate. And businesses say, we have to give our customers what they require. And they also say, we, you know, we need legislation to help us. Do. And everybody can say, well, it's another party that starts all this. So it's clearly the change comes from everywhere. And so for us as individuals, I think it's about, there are about two areas of change. So the first is about how we, you know, how we live our own lives. And the reason that that matters, despite rebound effects and everything, is that uh, when we make the changes we can, we're all conflicted and we're all imperfect and so on, and we shouldn't beat ourselves up about this. And that we shouldn't beat Harry and Meghan up about this either, by the way, too badly. Um, perhaps a slight smack wrist on what, that one thing, but you know, overall we should be encouraging. But um, so you know, we should try and cut our carbon footprints as best we can, and we should take it seriously and we should try and find ways of living better, not worse, with lower carbon. And that's about creativity as well. And when we do that, you know, um, we, uh, we make it more normal for other people to do it. And we show everybody, including businesses and politicians, that we really, really care about this. We don't just say we care. Uh, and we, we make it possible. We create the space for uh, businesses to do things differently and for politicians to act differently and so on. So that's why that really, really matters. And we also learn firsthand, I think because the, the per, at the personal level, the issues are very parallel to the, the, the way the issues play out at the global level. So we kind of get a firsthand experience of all the conflicts that we encounter ourselves. They're just like the global conflicts going on in our own heads. Um, 
And we shouldn't expect the personal solution to be any easier than the global solution. So that's the first half. It's about you know, all, the, all the personal living stuff. And then the second half, and this is at least as important, or they're, they're both essential together, is to ask the question, what can I do to exert influence? And that's about how am I in the workplace? How am I in my place of education? How am I when I vote? How else do I influence my politicians? And really, really uh, importantly now, the question, and I don't want to prescribe this to anybody, but, you know, the question of, you know, is it time to take to the streets on this? Because we have had decades of asking nicely, and we do absolutely urgently need change uh, right now. Uh, and I think that's got to be very cleverly done, intelligently done, thoughtfully done, respectfully done, and done with a kind of insistence that, that creates that change. And can I push you a little bit on that take to the streets? That really does feel like, you know, set the barricades. And nonetheless, though, we have seen really quite unprecedented, certainly on these yeah. issues, levels of outrage and activism from um, Extinction Rebellion sit-ins and, and um, activities in not just a range of cities across the UK, but actually increasingly across Europe. And then the Fridays for Future, the... Uh, climate strikes uh, and the many scores of, of children stepping out of school to strike for the climate. Again, what would your advice be? Do you see yourself as an on-the-streets activist or happily supporting in the background? Well, we will have to work out where we stand in all this. So I'm certainly not somebody who thinks so instinctively, oh, goody, it'll be fun to go and, uh, you know, <laughs> block a bridge. Um, but, I, you know, on the other hand, I'm... T I, uh, you know, I think we've got to that point where we, do, we absolutely need to see change. And all of us have to kind of ask the personal question, what's my role in that going to be? And it doesn't mean to say you have to get arrested, but you know, how am I going to be supportive of, of that? Um, I wasn't sure what I'd make of Extinction Rebellion, if I'm honest, uh, when they were doing their April, their stuff in April. Uh, and I spent a lot of time just going between the four sites that they had uh, and some of the things they did made me think, oh my goodness, I hope they don't do that again. Um, but I thought they learned rapidly from the mistakes that they made on the whole. And I was, overall, I would say I was incredibly impressed by them. And I will just say why I think that was. I think they were, the values that they were standing for and really insistent on are exactly the same as the three values that I call for in, in my book, which I think are, in a way, it's the crunch point of my book. And they were, the first is absolutely insistent on universal respect for everybody. They were saying all the time, we respect the public, we respect each other, we respect the police, we respect all politicians, all business people, we respect everybody. And I think that's a, just such a core principle. You know, if we, if we, we're all in this together now in the Anthropocene, and we need to have that uh, value of treating everybody as if they have equal inherent value as a, as a human being. It seems to be really hot on that. Uh, secondly, uh, they were very hot on truth. And that's the second core value that I call for in my book. You know, we need to get far sharper at um, uh, discerning fact from fiction as best we can, insisting on it. You know, the, we've got a, a world now where, you know, in this country, we are putting up with politicians. We are putting up, I don't want to get too party political too quickly, but we are putting up with a a, a prime minister who has a track record of deliberately misleading the public through his deliberately putting on journalism. <laughs> uh, 
I do talk to the Conservative Association as well, I should say, right? So I, you know, I, this, is, this has to transcend uh, party political boundaries. It absolutely has to. Even though my book almost says don't vote Conservative in not so many words. You know, I still, we still, because of the things that the market economy can't do and the way that we need to address inequality. But so we need to get far sharper at working out who we can trust, what we can trust, and sticking with our sources of information that we can trust for a well-founded a well um, criteria for working that out. And we need to just not be voting for politicians that aren't careful with the truth. And we need to be, if, if a politician is found to have been careless with the truth, we need to really hammer at them you know, uh, uh, and make it just you know, the, the end of your political career, almost. And what was the third value? Oh, the third value is to respect all species, not just the servants of humanity, and they're, they're hot on that too. <laughs> Thank you. You talked about values as the crunch point. You've talked very eloquently about the impact of fossil fuels, keeping them in the ground. We've talked about a change in terms of food systems overall. If you were to share a couple of, piece of, of, of pieces of advice personally to this room, and I guess probably a way of, of framing it, I, you know, I, I can't speak for you, but I know any range of decisions and dramas that go on over our kitchen table at home <laughs> and the decisions that we make, whether it's how we go on holiday, whether it's what's in the fridge, what, it, what we should and shouldn't consume as a family. What, what, what advice or what insights would you share? I know you, you again, very eloquently say you're no saint, um, but these are dramas that we all face on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, just to, you know, I'm not, just because I've kind of written all this stuff does not actually make the change any easier for me than it is for anybody else. So I'm just as conflicted as, you know, as anybody. So I think it's, it's there's no point beating ourselves up, right? We, we, are all, we are all where we are now and we all do the best we can. And that doesn't mean to say we let ourselves off the hook, but we need to find a way, you know, forward with it. And it's about finding ways in which life is better, not worse. You know, the low-carbon world is not a hair shirt. We... You know, the, the frustrating thing, but the fantastic thing, is we actually have an opportunity to live far, far better. You know, pursue the things that actually make life better, m much harder. Let go of the things that we're just kind of locked in a rut over, that, you know, um, that, we're, that are trashing the planet and trashing our lives while they're at it. And it, so a lot of it's just about flexible, creative thinking. Uh, and we just need to, you know, just, just keep trying, keep improving, keep finding ways... And actually, the world will move with us. So if you just take um, dietary change, so, you know, it's a lot easier to have a fantastic um, diet now and eat in great restaurants as a vegetarian or vegan than it was even five years ago or certainly ten years ago. Because, you know, they're waking up, you know, all the, the whole industry is waking up to meeting, catering for our needs. And also, as we get used to new habits, our preferences change. I've certainly found that you know, myself, and I just moved by degrees um, as well. And all the old, you know, all the old, um, it's also worth saying just on the food front, that all the old historic reasons why, you know, in, the, in going back 100 years, if you wanted to live longer, the single most important thing to make sure you had enough of in your diet, if you could, was probably meat and dairy. You know, that, those days are gone now. It's not in your health interest to have a load of meat and dairy. It's a historical, it's just a, you know, it's an outdated... Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.